mentioned Winnicott, it caught my ear because um, I have a wonderful book. It's called uh, Buddhism and Psychoanalysis. And yeah. It's a compendium of essays on the interface between the, uh, those two disciplines, I guess. The lead essay is by a psychologist, and I'm very chagrined that I cannot remember his name. Jack Engler. Thank you. The thesis of this is one must progress through the various stages of psychological development first, and then perhaps uh, become enlightened, let go, uh, develop the spiritual life. But you can't skip ahead and do the latter without doing the former. So I'm inviting comments on, on that. Well, that is one of the, um, that's been one of the themes in this dialogue between Buddhism and psychology. You know, Jack's, uh, in fact, that article, which is uh, a new article. There was one like And there was ro- one written 20 years ago, which he got a lot of flack from, about, from me and from Mark, <laughs> Mark Epstein and a lot of other people. That uh, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody? Yeah. That was exactly it. Um, uh, it, it was a way of trying to respond to the criticism. And I thought, I thought it was a pretty, pretty good article, the, the recent one. And actually, the one that he wrote 20 years ago, in, in the main thesis of which uh, Ajahn Amaro just articulated, that first you need to be somebody before you can be nobody, um, was offered in the, in a spirit of helpfulness because of some of the things that, that we, we were talking about in terms of some of the, the scandals with teachers doing unskillful and hurtful things. Likewise, there was a funny thing that, that I noticed in my earlier Zen practice, and I brought it up with my teacher after my first session or second session. I said, um, how is it that some of the people who seem to be making quote-unquote progress in their practice still treat one another with contempt? Um, and he said, um, bless his soul. I mean, he's still alive. Aitken Roshi is my teacher, and I'm grateful to him. But he said at that time, uh, well, they must not really be doing zazen. And uh, that didn't seem right to me then, and it doesn't seem right to me now that it's it's possible for us to be doing our practices, our Buddhist practices, and sometimes the practices don't sink in. They don't they don't trans, help us transform at a deep level. And I think what Jack was trying to say was that um, the structure of the personality actually matters. And I think that's a good point. It's a good point to make. Um, that uh, if we are organized uh, a certain way, and if there, are, yeah, then then w- we may bump up against some uh, some challenges in our practice. And the flip side is that um, certain of us may have a, a predisposition for spiritual experience, actually, and maybe emptiness or vacancy because of of certain psychological predispositions. So we can actually access some of these states very easily, but the meaning of those states and how they're integrated within our character and how they're manifested uh, doesn't really happen well because they're, uh, they're to some degree an artifact of 
of our personality. I, I don't know if I'm sort of confusing the situation here, but I, I think it's a it's a good it's a valid uh, statement uh, up to a point. You have to be somebody uh, before you can become nobody. That's to say, you have to develop certain capacities, certain capacities to distinguish inside from outside, uh, uh, feelings and thoughts and fantasies from reality, and all those other kind of things we call ego functions. Those just help us navigate in the world. And to the degree to which any of those capacities is compromised, it's going to strain our, our Buddhist practice. So, so I think he was, he was calling attention to that, and, and, and I think that was a good thing. However, what, what he neglected to, to, to say was that irrespective of our psychological organization, um, uh, all of us are also uh, spiritual beings. And if I might say that, and uh, our psychological experiences uh, are not just our experiences are not just reducible to the psychological. And so um, a lot of us criticized him for reducing spiritual practice to the psychological and making it seem like uh, you had to get this out of the way in order to do this other work. When, in fact, I think all of us all the time are doing both kind of work. All of us are developing ourselves spiritually and we're also evolving emotionally. And sometimes those two trajectories intertwine and sometimes they're actually separate. I was talking about this with someone over over lunch. Um, uh, That's to say, uh, I I don't think necessarily some of the teachers who involved in, uh, in hurtful behavior were not good practitioners. See, I think I think they may have been excellent practitioners, but um, there were elements of their impact on other people that they were unaware of. They they just were not aware of it because of certain uh, certain personality quirks and certain lack of uh, interest in in exploring their impact on other people. I'm going round and round here, I, I sense, but, but, but I, I do want to just throw out this idea that, that spiritual maturity and the trajectory that we've been talking about and, and emotional growth and maturity um, are not necessarily the same. They, they can potentiate one another but they're not the same. And I think at his best, Jack was calling attention to that. But I don't think it happens that way. For example, I'm still not so much trying to become somebody. I wouldn't put it in those terms. But um, as I deepen my Zen practice or engage my Zen practice, um, I grow emotionally. Things come up for me to process emotionally. I mean, it's just like that. Uh, and as I grow and deepen and face some truths about myself emotionally, then I'm spurred to go more deeply in my Zen practice. So that's the relationship between the two that that I like to talk about, and that seems to be true in, in my life. So now that I've completely <laughs> confused everything, opened up a can of worms. Anybody else? Ajahn? I'll just, just make a couple of comments uh, on that, if you like, um, one of the things, because obviously this, this uh, 
when when that article was first published and was sort of um, uh, rolling around in the in the Buddhist world, it, it was um, caught the attention of the Theravadans and the Vipassana crowd. And and it, it's uh, one of the things that's interesting is that classically perfect mental health, if such a concept can be <laughs> brought into the room. Where is it? Yeah. Well, I'd say the uh, the uh, the model for uh, the arahant or the the Buddha is is a perfectly mentally healthy being. That's our model for mental health. Of course, that means the rest of us are all crazy. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <clears throat> but if we take that um, as a model, um, anyway, the uh, that perfect mental health can be developed and established without any. Uh, uh, Ego structure uh, as uh, in sort of defined in, in, in Buddhist terms, being uh, being seen as an, an intrinsic or necessary part of that. So that the model is far is more. Um, I mean, it's, it's a whole different way of structuring this, you know, the overlapping sets of experiences. But it's it's interesting how at least in the Theravada formulation of things that there's no necessary I structure uh, in there. Certainly, there's positive mental states that are necessary. And so, that mental health in the Theravada path is based particularly on generosity and virtue. That's the basis of, of feeling good about yourself, is don't do things that you're going to regret. Right. A very basic kind of behavior therapy. If you, do, if you do things that are harmful, you have to remember them, and you feel bad about it. If you don't do them, you don't have to remember them, and you don't feel so bad. That might seem extraordinarily simplistic and naive, but if you carry it out, you realize, gee, this has got a lot to it. And you know, the, the reason why we, we feel bad about ourselves is that we act selfishly, we act dishonestly, we act cruelly, uh, insensitively, and then we feel the experience of, of regret. That quality of, of regret um, in, in Pali is called hiriotapa, or moral sensitivity. And it's considered to be a great blessing. It's rather like physical pain uh, protects the body. I mean, our ancestors who didn't feel physical pain were the ones that didn't survive. Right? The ones who, who, when they injured themselves, they went, ouch! And they looked after the wound and they kept away from the thing that hurt them before. They survived. The ones that got bashed up and cut and and, uh, beaten around, they didn't survive without it bothering them. So, physical pain protects the body. Hiriotapa, moral sensitivity, protects the, the emotional nature or the, the heart, the jitta. And so that, that means when we tell a lie, it's painful. If we hurt another being, it's painful to us. And that pain is, is, is a, a useful thing, just like physical pain. It's not pleasant, but it's useful. Alarm call, like, oh, wow, that, that's painful. Don't do that. And that the Buddha pointed out that these are, these are not human creations. These are intrinsic in the natural order. This, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, the natural sila. So these are not just by human agreement. These are just intrinsic in the human condition. Uh, is uh, this, this quality of, uh, of um, both painfulness when we do things that are harmful to others. And also the, the happiness that comes from behaving in a respectful and kind and honest way. And then generosity. There's a fundamental act of, of unselfishness, of, 
of taking into account the, the well-being and welfare of others and, and sharing what one has is an automatic uh, uh, source of, of brightness and inner contentment. And so that mental health, then, the you know, Buddha pointed out, when you, when you act out of generosity, we act out of sila, that leads to freedom from remorse. Freedom from remorse leads to pamoja, or delight, and joyfulness. Pamoja leads to a relaxation of body. The relaxation of the body leads to a quality of contentment. Contentment leads to, uh, uh, to samadhi. Samadhi leads to uh, knowledge and vision of the way things are. And that insight into the way things are leads to letting go. Letting go leads towards liberation. So that, and the liberation is, results in knowledge and, uh, and, and vision of liberation. So that, that, that whole process, I mean, he obviously mapped it out in various different ways as well. But that whole process, you see, there's no I am feeling great. There's the, you act, certain actions are followed, what we would call a positive self-image, or our conscious feelings of well-being arise, but there's no I am feeling good, or I am doing well, or I am happy, as an essential part of that. That's seen as what the, the thinking mind can, how it can name it, or, or add to it, or, or, or hold it. But it's not seen as an intrinsic part of it. So, it's an interesting... Uh, presence in that whole contemplation. I'm not saying, saying it's the whole story, but it's, it, I think it's a useful reflection that that whole quality of, of mental well-being and fulfillment can be established without ever being anybody in the first place. <laughs> Having said that, in the current edition of Tricycle, uh, Ajahn Tanisro has an article uh, in, sort of in, in praise and defense of, of the ego. <laughs> so... Uh, that's also, going to, that's also an interesting and useful reading. I don't know if any of you have read that. Oh, yeah? Yeah, there you go. Let, let, let me follow up on that briefly, and then we'll like to hear from all of you. Um, first of all, I think there's a confusion of tongues when we talk about the ego sometimes. Uh, the ego, as I use the term... Uh, when you mention the word ego, I, I, I hear ego attachment. Whereas for me, when I hear ego, I hear ego functions, the, the developmental capacities of, of judgment and memory and mm. consistency, conservation, that, you know, different shapes, same amount of water, various kinds of capacities. So uh, I, I agree with everything you just said. I think it's just wonderful. Um, and... If I'm correct on this, I may not be, but I think I am. The Buddha was speaking about a good enough personality structure. You see? This is based on a good enough personality structure. Because one of the amazing things that, um, that I've learned through interpersonal neurobiology is that our interactions with our significant others as early as in utero, and, and then afterward in the first year, particularly the first year of life, that, that beautiful dance of reciprocity, of mutual attunement, which is getting a lot of press lately, um, actually helps certain parts of the brain develop. Parts of the brain that then mediate things like our capacity to regulate our emotions, to reflect and sit with emotions, to 
understand other people's emotions, to care about other people, and so on. So if some of those early tracks have not been laid down, let's just take the extreme case, uh, we have a sociopath. And a sociopath, I I would suggest, and you may disagree about this, um, doesn't have access to that natural law of morality, that natural morality. He just doesn't. Uh, Doesn't have a conscience, doesn't hurt when somebody else hurts, couldn't give a damn about the impact on somebody else. So there's got to be some kind of basic neural structure, some basic uh, capacities for uh, emotion, awareness of emotion, regulation of emotion, empathy with somebody else, in order then to find this wonderful natural Sheila and to learn from it and to refine it and to grow with it and to see that, in fact, the Buddha was right, that this factor, probably more than any factor, that we may not have control over our lives. For example, I realized that the, the, um, the length of the break that I suggested we take for lunch it was completely out of control, uh, or, or in the morning rather. It, what it was based on was how many people needed to go to the bathroom. So there are often times we don't have control over something. There are a lot of other factors uh, at play. But one of the wonderful things about the Buddhist teaching is that there is an important dimension in which we have a tremendous amount of control. And even if we have had awful experiences growing up and we're beset by lots of pain, we have control in terms of how we respond to that pain. And um, the capacity for responding to our suffering uh, without adding fuel to the fire is also based on this sense of uh, kind of um, having internalized a good enough relationship with our caregivers. And uh, I think that's interesting because Meditation teachers, I know Zen teachers have often said, you know, to to students over the years, uh, maybe something comes up during a retreat and the teacher will say, well, just go sit with it. Well, what we're learning is that this capacity to just sit with disturbing experience is not a given. It's not self-evident, just like the natural capacity for empathy and uh, for learning from our actions. This capacity to sit with it is based on a sense of trust that I can be with myself, that I can be with the body. It has nothing to do with the eye, by the way. The, the more you pump up the eye, it's, it's really, again, a breakdown product. If you're having to pump yourself up and say, I can do this, I can do it, there's obviously not a sense of confidence and you're, you're plagued by, by your doubts about your own capacities. But uh, this idea that some early Zen teachers used to say, well, we'll just go sit with it. And there'd be people sitting on the cushion with this really powerful experience that they couldn't metabolize, that they couldn't really process. So uh, just a voice for both early experience and what we're learning from attachment research and, and that research is that the brain is very plastic and we can develop these powerful Uh, attachments that actually help sponsor our capacity for reflection and meditation. We can develop them even as we get older. In fact, our relationship with the Sangha, our relationship with our teachers, 
our good enough relationships in, in later life with our partners and our children, all of that can help to some degree with some of the lacunae in our development whereby uh, some of the tracks didn't get laid down. And uh, I think this, this dialogue between, and again, this has nothing to do with the contemptuous eye, but these internal neurological, psychological, emotional capacities for emotional regulation, for awareness, they grow by our relationships with others and they, it is internalized. And when we have those capacities, then we can forget about them. They, they function silently. We take them for granted. That's the beautiful thing about it. We only become aware of a problem when the capacity isn't working. When, when you know, shit happens as, as it does, it flies at us, we're able to, you know, if, if we have these capacities, if we're practicing in a skillful way, we don't have to make it worse for ourselves and for others. That's the number one Buddhist teaching, as near as I can tell, is do no harm. We do no harm, and that's a pretty good place to, to begin. And so the, the reactive emotions and the way we throw fuel on the fire uh, make things a lot worse for us. So I, I just want to keep throwing in uh, some things about these uh, psychological capacities uh, so that we understand that, um, that this conversation between some of the recent work uh, and Buddhism, I think, can, can enrich one another. At least they have for me and they have for some people I know. Yeah, I would, I would agree. Um, one, one point I, actually I thought of making it earlier in the day because, you know, we, we, people are hearing different voices and, and maybe uh, you're thinking that, uh, oh, I like this expression, or I don't like that expression, or this is right and that's wrong. But, but um, the, the, what we're trying to do for today is not to have like dueling non-dualisms. <laughs> Like my non-duality is less dual than your non-duality, <laughs> and that does. Ha- I mean, even though it it sounds like a joke, but a, f- a number of years ago, I've seen a few uh, uh, printed exchanges between uh, some non-dual, some purported non-dualists. Which ah. On on one level, it's it's all kind of high-minded philosophy. On another level, it's like, yeah, my dad's bigger than your dad. You know, my dad's going to come over and beat your dad up. You know. Now my dad's going to beat your dad up. You know, it's like the, the, the actual emotional quality is that of eight-year-olds squabbling in the, in the schoolyard, whereas the, uh, the language is all sort of emptier than thou. And, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, it's... What we're trying to, to uh, present is uh, you know, the, the, the richness of our traditions and, and the kind of complementary qualities rather than you know, which, which expression is sort of best and right, but just uh, offering uh, those up. Also, another um, a friend of mine in, in Massachusetts, um, uh, he said one of his, uh, is just telling me a little while, I was back there uh, at IMS um, a few weeks ago, and he said, one of his, his pet peeves is when people say, I'm really into non-duality. <laughs> he said, as opposed to what? 
you know, so uh, <laughs> if you're really into non-duality, you, you know, there's nothing to compare it to. You know. There's not two to compare it to. So, um, so it really just to, to encourage that that spirit of listening, you know, as the different things get said during during the day and uh, things get shared, or, or we're going to be uh, leading a couple of different meditations during this afternoon, so uh, to, to rather to let the mind wander down the um, compare and, and, and choose mode, just to, to encourage the quality of, of, of listening and taking it all in and, and gathering it into that uh, unbiased embrace. That's a beautiful expression, um, unbiased embrace. Did you just make that up? Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> well, something did. Yeah. <laughs> you just made that up. <laughs> don't be shy now. Um, don't be stuck on the eye. Um, you know, the other side of the openness to dialogue, which, which we have to have, is that it seems useful to be able to also talk about differences without there becoming invidious differences. You know, malevolent differences, differences that are better or worse or that kind of thing. And you, you probably know this funny story, but just uh, some of you might not. So uh, do, do you know the story of the exchange between Sansanim and, and Kalu Rinpoche uh, that Mark Epstein writes about in, in the beginning of his first book, Thoughts Without a Thinker? But it's, it is a funny book. It's a funny story. Um, uh, uh, Sun Sanim is, is a Zen teacher, a Korean Zen teacher, and very forceful and very pushy about enlightenment. And so he began the dialogue with Kalu Rinpoche, one of the uh, most revered, senior, most seasoned Tibetan teachers. Very, very diminutive man, beautiful looking man. And he begins the dialogue by, uh, by picking up an orange and saying, what is this? And... Uh, that's the opening salvo in a Dharma dialogue for a Zen teacher. It's just what they do. And, uh, you know, what is this? What's the, what's Buddha? What's, what's the mind? You know, you take your pick. You know, just let's, uh, let's dialogue. Let's uh, make some sparks and start some new understanding. So Kala Rinpoche has this sort of look and then he turns to his aide and they, they whisper a little bit and nothing. And uh, so Sansanim picks up the orange again and says, what is this? Likewise, the same, same scenario, and there's no response. And he does it yet a third time. And um, Kalu Rinpoche turns to his translator, and the translator finally says, um, uh, uh, Rinpoche wants to know if they uh, have oranges in uh, Korea. <laughs> Don't they have oranges in Korea? <laughs> so, so sometimes we can assume that someone is speaking our language, uh, following our way, uh, when it's, it is actually very helpful to point out a difference and to let it be with the spirit of uh, vive la différence. Uh, you know, there's one, uh, one meal, but it can have different tastes and one Buddha family with different cuisines and uh, certainly uh, aligned in terms of our goals of liberating all beings from suffering and from the sources of suffering and for promoting genuine happiness based on deep understanding.
the question. So is it naive of me to think of the teachings of the Eightfold Path or even developing the Paramitas? I mean, doesn't that kind of address that development of not necessarily the I am kind of personality, but the strength of characteristic or cultivating the characteristics in which, um, you know, then you can proceed on to letting go. Both proceed on and um, they're a reflection of your letting go. As you practice, they, they reflect. They are your letting go as you practice them. Absolutely. Not naive at all. Um, this is just back to what you guys are talking about, the non-dual and dual, non-dual against what. Because so, I was listening and it, it was, to some point it was kind of frustrating because there's no separation yet, yet you talk about Theraveda or uh, Buddhism or Jainism or Zenism or whatever. There is no separation yet. There is separation. You know, it's kind of frustrating. But do you know what I mean? The one and the many have been, you know, the, the hot topic for a long time. <laughs> and this is what you're bringing up. We, it's challenging for us to wrap our minds around diversity and unity. How can things be vivid and diverse and unique where no two snowflakes are alike, no two people are alike? Praise the Lord. Huh? And yet, um, we are run through like with a skewer, you know, with... Uh, with the fundamental qualities of existence. And I, I wouldn't try to solve that. I, you know, a, a Zen teacher would invite you to cultivate that, that curiosity and just ask yourself, how can that be? And to really sit with that. Because in the perennial Zen experience, certainly, it's an experience of vividness and clarity, which is also in which things also share the same nature. So um, it's not that they're separate in terms of subject and object, that I'm separating myself from the poor person on the street or the fact that there's a war going on in Iraq. I mean, how can I do that? We are so intimately interconnected. When we drop a bomb over there, it also drops over here. I mean, that's the teaching of interbeing, isn't it? I remember asking Thich Nhat Hanh about that uh, uh, 1983 about uh, enlightenment and, um, and he said enlightenment is the bomb you know enlightenment is the bomb and he wasn't speaking in street slang you know enlightenment is the bomb he, 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 he was saying you, you, you know you can't turn away you must not turn away your enlightenment must include all things good bad and ugly um, uh, and yet, we don't want to get, uh, and yet, although we are so intimate with all beings, 
we're also completely distinct and unique manifestations of the Dharma. And this is not a, it's a paradox. It's, it's not a question to be solved. It's something to be lived with for a while. And it actually has a quality of a koan in Zen. Just that quality of a question, which a Zen teacher looks for in a student. You know, what is their question? For the Buddha, apparently it was, you know, why is there suffering in the world? What's the source of this suffering? How can it be transformed? And I think each of us has a question like this. And koan practice draws on this natural curiosity, not to get an answer, but to hold the question so deeply that that our whole uh, being uh, finds its resolution in, in daily life. One day we wake up and it's clear and we can, we can express it. It's like trying to think about um, what should I do you know, next week? Should I go on a plane or should I stay at home or should I go visit my friend? And I'm sure each of us has reach those forks in the road where we couldn't make a decision based on logic. We made our column A and our column B and, you know, they just didn't accord. We couldn't, we couldn't resolve it. And have you had the experience where you just sort of forget about it for a while? But you know somewhere it's still functioning. Somewhere that question is still working. And then one day it's just as clear as day. And, oh, well, of course, I'm going, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already there. You see, and so one of the features of, of Zen is to be able to use our curiosity and to bump up against these areas where the mind can't wrap itself around something here, equality and difference, and just sort of stay with the question and try to formulate it in a way that we can work with it and not try to resolve it intellectually because, you know, we... we I mean, I can give you a mathematical formula that will resolve it apropos of mathematics. My, my, but, but even that, it's sort of like feeding plastic cakes to somebody. You know, uh, you've got to eat the real cake for yourself. But uh, my teacher, Yamada Kohen Roshi, uh, said that, that reality is like a fraction. And of course, you know, a fraction is, is a whole integer. I mean, you can't take, take apart the numerator from the denominator. But if you want to take it apart for purposes of discussion, you can put in the denominator a circle, meaning emptiness, and the sign for the infinite within it. So the empty infinite is the denominator. That's to say it's the substance of everything, every moment, every being. And on the the numerator, you can put anything. A man, a woman, happiness, sadness, uh, being a beginner, being an advanced practitioner being diluted, being enlightened, water, tea. And the substance is empty and infinite, but the form varies infinitely. So each moment can be seen as an integer like that, as a fraction. So that's one way of theoretically trying to present the unity of equality and difference of the universal and the particular. But um, e- even that model, a- as cute as I think it is, I, I think it's very cute. I-, I still like to think about it. Um, yeah. it you know, it-, it-, it doesn't really help us. It doesn't really help us that much unless it kindles something within us, you know, experientially. 
unless it opens the, the doorway to some intuitive grasp of it, experiential grasp, or unless it makes us really curious, like I think you might be, you know, and that we can take that formula and then practice it and test it out like the Buddha invited us to do. Is, is, that, is there something to that particular formula? Let, let me see for myself. I think this just to um, maybe after this we should have a, a little bit of a break and, uh, and then some meditation. And some meditation. Um, so what comes to mind is that um, you know, we're, there's a, a strong conditioning to see reality from a particular level. And uh, one way uh, of uh, of looking at it is that we actually live uh, with uh, uh, on, an, on an everyday uh, basis with an awful lot of appreciation of of unity and and diversity. Say you think of your body as a, as a single thing, well you you've exchanged billions of of molecules of of oxygen and carbon dioxide since you arrived this morning. You've ingested food, you know, you breathe moisture in and out. You know, our, our skin has been shedding cells. We've all breathed in each other. Mm. So what I think of as my body or your body or anybody else's body, it's not the same. Like Joe and I have been exchanging all morning, all afternoon. <laughs> you know, all kinds of atoms with Joe written on, you know, molecules of this and that. And, and so that well, there's this uh, a neat... Um, acronym that Neil Stevenson, the author, um, came up with, which is a RIST, R-I-S-T, Relatively Independent Subtotality. <laughs> we are all RISTs. Relatively Independent Subtotality. So, uh, within our body, you know, we, we think, oh, I'm an individual human being, but actually, you know, we're, we're ex- kind of exchanging parts with each other all the time. This day long, this is a body. We've gathered together as a group of beings. A few have arrived late, a few have left already, but we are a, a body of people. We even use that expression. Right? Um, the body of people that is the sati center that is unlocated. <laughs> uh, the body which is uh, insight meditation center. The, I, I'm part of the body of a Bayagiri monastery, Theravada Buddhism, Theravada monastic community. We exist as, as parts, as cells of much larger bodies. You know, your family, you know, all the different... Uh, you know, we are uh, smaller units of larger totalities of the human race, or people in America, or whatever. Our own bodies, you know, there's my pancreas, my liver, my lungs, my guts, my you know, blood vessels, muscles, and so on. Uh, the whole massive colonies of micro, you know, microbes. I mean, if you look at your skin under a, you know, a highly magnifying uh, microscope, there's ecosystems. You know, you wash your hands, you wipe out whole colonies. You know, it's like an ecological disaster <laughs> for several different plantations. You know, you just go and put some of that you know, hand sanitizer or put your hands under the tap and boom, you know, so you wiped out whole species. Suddenly knocked into oblivion. And all you did was wash your hands, you know, comb your hair or something. So, um, the, but we think, oh, this is my body, I'm an individual. Because that's the level that our, our favoured zone of consciousness parks itself. That's the, that's the level that our, our common everyday uh, level of attention is pegged at. Individual person. That sort of gets the, the most attention. And then things like 
my, my body parts, organs, cells, molecules don't get so much attention. Or my role as you know, one man amongst, you know, amongst human males or, or uh, an English person or a, a Theravada monk. They don't get so much attention. The individual um, person and personality gets a sort of the, the, the peak, quality, you know, peak quality of attention. So that gets the, this is what I am. At this moment. But it changes a lot, right, all the time. So we actually live with a, in a whole sort of, you know, like a, a whole spectrum of individualities uh, and, uh, and diversities all the time. And so in a way, what we're doing with the, the meditation and uh, understa- a deepening understanding of Dharma is like stepping further and further back or being more and more that space of awareness that holds all those different Realities from the sub-molecular, sub-atomic, to the universal, you know, that's, uh, and to the non-material altogether. That is, you know, I am, I am, I am the you know, subatomic space, the quantum foam of uh, you know, of the subatomic realm. You know, the, the, I am the the universe. I am the you know, all realms of being. I am the net of Indra. Uh, and that all of those apply in their own way. So it's like taking a, a, a more and more spacious, less and less uh, fixated view and expanding. And then you see that that sense of I am this separate individual, it can only be a, an impression based on conditioning. And when, you, when the conditioning is loosened up and, and seen through, then it's like, oh, well, that's just one view of it. How could that be the whole story? And that's what insight, that insight of into anatta, not self. It's not really an insight into no self. It's an insight into not self. Like the personality is not self. The body is not self. The memory is not self. Feeling is not self. It's like the, the, that's not, it's that realization of that's not the whole story. How could that be the whole story? Ah. And that the picture gets a lot bigger. So maybe that's a good point to separate out on. <laughs> Let some. Yeah, maybe one more question, and then we'll take a break. Please, is there a mic? This was a very simplistic uh, idea that just sort of popped in there, but. Um, it seemed that for just a moment it was as if the heart was recognizing that there's a pancreas and that there's blood vessels and there's kidneys and there's everything else in here along with it. And, it was, you know, like the heart literally waking up to the fact that it's actually doing a very important job for everybody else. But until now, I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know? Hey, the boss just noticed me. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> the boss. <laughs> Is that pretty accurate? That's, that's the way it works, yes. Yeah. 